prayer bulletin, we'll have Brother Doug coming down the middle aisle. And uh, we'd love for you to grab an outline, if you will. Follow along with us, and uh, you'll kind of see, uh, uh, it helps contextually, and uh, to kind of see where we're going, where we've been, and things there. So if you'll join me in Hebrews chapter number 10, and uh, if you need an outline, get Doug's attention, if you will. The last few weeks, we see him beginning in verse number 19. We talked about this new and living way, as he puts it here, just a verse later in verse number 20. And Paul is uh, excited. As you read Hebrews, this is an excited part of the book. He's, he's excited about our salvation. He's excited particularly, or particularly about the fact that we can have a relationship with the God of heaven. We talked about how that was a revolutionary thought to the Jews in that day. And even to the pagans, the Gentiles, who might have other types of gods they believed in, that they came to know Christ and were shared the gospel. That would have been unusual, uh, a hard-to-fathom thought for them. And so we talked about Paul's going to present for us in these next few verses as we've studied uh, what we have in Christ what we've been given in Christ, and we are called to enjoy it. The first one is that boldness to enter the presence of God, that nothing stands now between us, and uh, we can uh, know God intimately, personally, experience His fellowship, His presence, and His power. Number two, we saw verse 21, Christ is a trailblazer, right? He is that high priest that has gone, He's gone before us, He's secured an, an open invitation in the very presence of God Himself, and so you and I can go in based on what He has done. It's an invitation to dwell, not just come by for a quick visit, not just pop in, pop out, but literally dwell in the very presence of God, and I hope you've done so today. I hope you've been able to spend some time with Him. I hope tonight is a time when you and I get to dwell in the very presence of God as we draw near unto Him. We said, likewise, then, we cannot simply just rest on this truth. To possess it doesn't mean that we will use it. It does not guarantee it. And so that's where Paul segues to point number two, right? We're called to do something about it. What we are called to do in Christ, experience it. This is what we hit on last week. And we talked about the, the call here in verse number 22 to enter. Let us draw near. We're encouraged to do what? Number one, pursue the entrance. Pursue such an entrance. Um, be determined, purposeful in entering the presence of God regularly uh, make it a priority do it every day multiple times a day go into the very presence pursue getting into God's presence and then number two uh, the rest of verse 22 purify yourself with such an entrance he started off with that statement makes a true heart and full assurance of faith didn't he and we talked about that genuineness to our, our faith there's no hypocrisy there's no ulterior motive it's not just superficial or surfacy in other words it's not a foxhole faith right well, God, if you'll work this out, then I promise I'll, I'll, I'll get serious about my relationship with you, okay? If you work in this situation, if you do this, I, I promise I'll get serious about walking for you and walking with you and so forth. This is a genuineness. and We talked about that nice vocab word. It's voracious. It's honest. It's truthful. It's genuine there, okay? Why is that important? Because that genuine faith then produces an unwavering aspect to us, an unwavering confidence. Now, we'll see that tonight in the very next verse. He alludes to this, but it's an unwavering confidence which leaves no room for doubt. There's, there's no doubt where my faith is placed that it will come through, that God will follow through. And then we just quickly, we're not going to hit on it a lot tonight, but we talked about Israel, how there was often displayed a quick to doubt attitude throughout their history. They lacked that genuine heart within. Now here he's talking in this verse, verse 22, a lot about the priest and the purification process, ceremonial and cleansing and so forth as they went about the, you know, the ministry of the temple. And then he makes that statement, and quite an interesting one, our consciousness being sprinkled uh, from an evil conscience. And so we ask, what does that mean? Well, our conscience is very good at condemning us. 
It's very good at reminding us of our guilt over our sin. And the guilt of sin, as we said last time, cannot be removed until the sin is removed. So when Christ died and he shed his blood for us, the remissions of sin was then possible. And therefore, our conscience can be free of guilt. It can be sprinkled, as it put here, sprinkled from an evil conscience. And therefore, we are cleansed of the evil conscience within that condemns us. And we can claim the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is a great truth. The last thing we looked at last week was simply that last statement. He said, having our bodies washed with pure water. We understood that the Holy Spirit used Paul at two other places that he wrote to define what that means. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, that washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Ghost. And then in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 26, he speaks to the reality that Jesus Christ is going to, to sanctify us, wash us with the very word of God. And I'll tell you, nothing gets off the muck and the dirt of this world like getting in God's word. Nothing renews our mind, right? In the Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Not, nothing renews us and, and helps us to get off all the, the, the bad thinking, the, the, the false thinking of this world, the, even Satan, like getting in God's Word. And boy, Paul's encouraging us to, to do that here. And, and we want to do that on a regular basis as we draw near unto God. So let us, first part of this vegetation patch, right? And uh, so here's how we concluded last time. We ought to draw near a genuine, true heart producing an unwavering confidence that is uh, that, that that is that full assurance faith and that full assurance faith and i like that statement we draw near claiming the blood of jesus christ as the basis for entering my sins have been cleansed through his blood and then last but not least draw near being washed and cleansed by the word of god and the spirit of god okay now we want to look at the next piece of lettuce in god's vegetation patch here that he wants in you and i when he would have us growing in our lives look at verse 23 if you will with me verse number 23 let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering parenthetical phrase for he is faithful that promised he is faithful okay number one enter let us draw near that's the first one that you and i are supposed to heed and have in our life number two endure endure is the second one pretty straightforward command of scriptures for you and i to be steadfast in our faith to persevere as we jump into that word where it says here in uh, verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Now, in, uh, what's interesting, that word faith in the Greek translated as such it is a word that is translated as hope uh, every other time it appears, some 50-something times. Okay, It's translated as hope. Here it's translated as faith. And I'm glad that the, the King James translators did that. I really am. I think that they had something here that Paul is emphasizing about faith. We know that faith is robust. It has many facets to it, many descriptions. Well, Paul is emphasizing something here that has to do with expectation. He is really honing in on our faith and our looking forward, the hope aspect, if we might describe it as such. Why is that important? Because faith that is without hope is not faith. Faith without hope is not faith. Uh, he will go on and explain that. Faith is not faith without hope. Paul makes the point in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11, doesn't he? We'll be there and eventually. He says what? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Hoped for. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. There is inherent to faith. There must be hope. And that's why uh, the, uh, he uses the terminology faith here. And yet hope is inherent to it. It's not, all, it's not the only place. Paul would also use this exact same Greek word in Titus 2.13. You remember that one? We're challenged to do what? Looking for that blessed hope. That blessed faith. 
uh, and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Literally, our faith fulfilled, the hope of our faith, Jesus Christ returning. And uh, we were on the way to church tonight, and uh, I don't know where Caden put on his theological thinking cap, but here's what he asked me on the way to church tonight. He goes, Dad, when Jesus Christ comes back, is he going to do it in Mexico or China? Where's he coming back? So we talked a little bit about it, right? The entirety of the, the second coming and the rapture meeting us in the air and then eventually back to Jerusalem and things like that and, and so forth. And, and uh, it's a good question, right? And, uh, uh, from an eight-year-old and so forth. And so um, uh, the reality is this, as we think about that, that's what we're looking for, that blessed hope, the promise of return. So what is Paul emphasizing? He's emphasizing the expectancy aspect of faith, the thing hoped for by faith. Now here's what's important, okay? We've said this before. We've explained it as such. And I love this statement. This is a great one to write down and to think of for a long time. We must remember that this is not the hope-so of earthly hope. It is the no-so of heavenly hope. We have to remember when we read of this word hope, and as it is tied to our faith, we're not speaking of the hope-so of earthly hope. We're speaking of the no-so of um, uh, heavenly hope. Okay? We, we all here have sat under preaching long enough to understand what this statement is referencing. But just in case, the hope so of uh, um, uh, earthly hope is this. I, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Now, I can't control the rain, and I don't know for sure if it's going to rain tomorrow, okay? But I certainly hope not. Soccer games, some other things transpire that I'd rather not have rain for, okay? That's a hope so. I, I can hope for a lot of things, but there's no, uh, on earth, but there's no guarantee of it. The opposite is true of a spiritual hope, a heavenly hope that we have in Jesus Christ. A hope that is based on something that God has given us in his word. That is a no-so hope. Can I tell you tonight, I sure am hoping I have a hope of going to heaven. Well, you say, Pastor Henry, you don't have to hope so. No, 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 I don't hope so. I know so in my hope that I'm going to heaven. Why? Because it's based on what Jesus Christ did. His sacrifice, my faith and trust in that. It's a no-so hope. I, I know that it is so, and I have that hope that one day it will be fulfilled. Because God keeps his word. Even as this passage will allude to, we see that. You see what the statement now in this verse. He says, now that hope, it's anchored and it is secured in something that he mentions in this verse. What does he mention in the verse? Well, at the end, he says that God is a God of promises. He's a God of promises. So that's how he identifies in this verse. He's a God of promises. He, is, he, he makes promises to you and I, and we have a no-so uh, no hope based on those promises of what he says is going to happen for you. So as we profess our trust in God, so he says, hold fast to the profession of your faith. Tonight, if you're here tonight, you say, hey, I, I trust in, in, in Jesus Christ, I trust in God, and, and uh, uh, that's your profession, hold fast to it. That's what he's saying here, and I like that statement. He says, hold fast to the hope, the, uh, the faith that you have in Christ. It's a strong perseverance in the face of what comes, and I, I think that is what Paul's getting at. Let us draw near unto God. That confidence, that boldness, let us draw near in, in knowing that uh, is necessary and needed and God has made a way for us to do so. Now, let us hold fast our faith, the profession of our faith. 
cling to that hope, if we might describe it as such, as he's saying here. In fact, that terminology of hold fast to our hope or our faith, it literally means to restrain, retain, to hold tightly, in firm possession of, okay? I like that first definition, that uh, the, the restraint. Have you ever had to restrain a young child? Kind of hold them, okay, from doing something or getting up or going somewhere, and you've just held tightly onto that child. That's kind of the word picture even here. Um, it's the idea of gripping tightly, okay? I don't know, when I think of gripping tightly, here's what I think of. Um, how, many of you, how many of you like roller coasters? How many roller coaster lovers do we have here? Oh, a good number. Wow, I'm impressed. Okay, good. How many of you are the kind that, boy, you take a roller coaster and your hands are up in the air the entire time? Be honest, how many are like that? Okay. How many of you are more like this? Hanging on for dear life and everything else. I'm probably more like that, to be honest, okay? And I always like riding with people. I, I used to do a lot more roller coasters and things. When I was a youth pastor, I'm not a big fan of heights. As a youth pastor, though, you had to act like the cool youth pastor. So I always went on the rides and everything else, acted like I liked them, put my hands up when I could. When they weren't looking, I grabbed on for dear life. But anyway, and uh, so that's roller coasters. Now, since my aneurysm, and they say I can't do it, so that's my easy excuse not to have to do it. So uh, with the kiddos and things like that. But anyway, so uh, it's funny to me because sometimes on a roller coaster, you'll see the people who start out like this, right? And you get over that first hole, what are they like? <laughs> Grabbing that, they're hanging on that bar, and they start off great, right? But then the real roller coaster came, the dips and the curves and the upside-down loops and everything else and the, the fast speeds, and all of a sudden, boy, that roller coaster came at them. And so they're gripping on tightly for dear life. Now, there's a great illustration in that because the fact is a roller coaster is kind of a good picture of life sometimes. It's kind of a good picture of life. There's dips, there's curves, there's drops, there's climbs, there's loops, there's craziness and uh, things you can't do. In fact, I was on the uh, uh, senior trip a couple years ago with our seniors here, and uh, we went to Dollywood down there and so forth. There's this one roller coaster. I found out real quick, I don't like a roller coaster that goes backwards. It came in, it pulled into the shed, and like, what's going on? All of a sudden, whoosh, we went backwards the other way, and I found out real quick, I don't like that. I like to see where I'm going. You, know, you like that, where you have to see where you're going? Anyway, so I don't know, sometimes that's a roller coaster. I mean, life is just like that. It throws things at you that you, you're not ready for and, and so forth. You know, the question with that is this, you know, or the statement, sometimes it's necessary and good just to hang on tightly. So I'd ask you tonight, because Paul is hitting on this, what kinds of things in the roller coaster of life happen to you that tempt you uh, to let go? This like, okay, I let go and, and not to hang tightly onto Christ. What are the kinds of things that life throws at you? Is it financial? Is it health? Is it some kind of issue with relationships? Is it discouragement? Is it you look around, you see a nation and culture gone crazy? What, what causes you holding fast to the profession of your faith to falter? There's a reason I ask, because Paul was understanding his audience. He does not write this lightly when he says, hold fast to the profession of your faith. He realizes that he is writing good predominantly or predominance to Jews. Jews who have left the faith of their forefathers, who have left the faith of their families. He understood that it was going to come under great pressure, that in the days ahead, as they came to claim Jesus Christ, as they went back home and said, you know, I don't believe we have to do the sacrifices anymore. I, I believe that this one that uh, our nation crucified is really the Messiah. He's the promised one. As they went back home and proclaimed their faith in Jesus Christ, there was going to be great pressure, even persecution. 
there will be the pressures exerted upon them by a family as they forfeited much by walking away from Judaism. The Jewish culture and community at large, a very close-knit, tight community, could be very unforgiving towards someone who turned away from their national faith. On top of that, you add all the persecution, whether Jew or Gentile, that the church suffered during this time. Often there was a great loss of income, instability due to their choice to follow Christ. The pressures were great. The temptation would have been high on many of these young believers to let go of their newly acquired faith. Uh, the pressures of life, the pressures of family, the things that come up in life would have been great pressure. So Paul is writing here, as the Holy Spirit would encourage you and I, do not let the roller coaster of life, do not let the pressures of life cause you to let go of your profession of faith, specifically your hope in Christ. So let us draw near and let us hold fast the profession of our faith. You can imagine that some of these Jewish converts, their family and friends, would repeatedly try to convince them, what are you giving up? Look at all you're losing. How is this worth it? And they try to convince them they're wrong. They would try to convince them that they are in error to follow Christ. And so as Paul would encourage them and does so in this letter to hold fast in the face of such pressures, the Holy Spirit would challenge you and I, every believer tonight, that instead of allowing things to cause us to let go of our hope in all things in Christ, we should grip tighter to the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Hold tightly, restrain, retain, have firm possession of Christ, particularly your faith and your hope in Him. You see, the Holy Spirit through this verse pleads with each one of us to hold fast to the profession of our faith on a daily basis. What does that mean? It means, therefore, you let your actions be anchored um, in hope those actions and the production the the living of our lives is anchored in the hope and it's on display in our living that's why paul goes on to add what he says do it without wavering it's an interesting statement he says don't let there be some hiccups don't let there be some trip ups uh, do your best to, to uh, not have a wavering it's literally the idea of this getting off center okay getting off center you ever driven with one of your kids that are just starting to drive and they start going off the road a little bit or in the middle lane? You're like, hey, bring it back in the middle. Just keep it between the lines. That's kind of like the word here. It literally means to kind of lean in the wrong direction. Okay, Lean in the wrong direction or, uh, or to lean on the wrong thing. Okay, uh, You could picture leaning on something that gave way, leaning on something that didn't hold you up. In this case, Paul is saying, don't go backwards. Don't lean backwards. Don't lean in that wrong direction. And there certainly seems to have been a national pandemic within the nation of Israel throughout our history of people looking back when they needed to look forward and trust God. So Paul warns here against it. In fact, he uses some terminology unique to this verse. That's good, right? The terminology of use of faith is what? Well, faith is a forward-looking word. Faith, certainly based upon things that we know in the past, but it's a forward-looking word, while the thought of wavering pictures that leaning backwards, going backwards. And for Jew, going back to Judaism, going back to the things that Christ has saved them from, and so going backwards. Uh, there's many biblical pictures of this, isn't there? 
There's Lot's wife who was escaping the city and uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and, and looked back and was changing the pillar of salt, that looking back. There is uh, Peter who took his eyes off Christ and looked down at the water and began to sink. There's the, the as Christ himself would describe, there's the farmer or the laborer who has his hand to the plow but looks back. And how did Christ describe that? In Luke chapter 9, he said this, And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So Paul is warning here, don't look back. Don't let your faith waver. Hold fast your profession of faith. You've trusted in Jesus Christ. Stick to it. Hold on to him tightly. It's a beautiful picture. And yet we would have to say, boy, that's a tall order. Day by day, through, any, through the roller coaster of life, through everything we face, uh, to maintain, to be daily, steadfast, unmovable in our faith. But Paul says, listen, you know, let me encourage you. In fact, let me inspire you, he says in this verse. You can gain strength and resolve. We, I love the hymn, I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delights. There is a resolve that can be encouraged and strengthened by something. You say, well, what is that? Well, Paul tells us in this verse, doesn't he? The remainder of it. He says, you and I can look to the faithfulness of our God for inspiration. For inspiration. It's the parenthetical phrase at the end of verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. And then he throws this in there. Though parenthetical, it's great and it's necessary and encouraging. For he is faithful that is promised. He's faithful. The faithfulness of God. The one who's promised all of these blessings. The one who's promised eternal life in Christ. There's a great doctrinal truth. Additional doctrinal truth. Many of these are great doctrines. Okay? There's another doctrinal truth in this passage. And I love it because it, it does clarify or it does clear up some erroneous doctrinal teaching. Here's what he says in the verse. Don't miss it. Notice what he does not say and it tells us because of what he does say. Note this. We are not commanded to hold fast our salvation. He says, hold fast the profession of your faith. You and I are not called to hold fast our salvation because, my friend, you and I can neither procure our salvation nor can we maintain it. We are not saved in our own strength and power. And there are some false teachers, teachers out there and some false doctors out there So you know, once you're saved, you've got, you, you've got to keep your salvation. My friend, there is no way we can keep our salvation just as there's no way you and I can save ourselves. Only Jesus Christ can do that. So there's great encouragement in this doctrinal truth. You and I are not called to hold fast on our salvation. We are not called to hold on to God for salvation because you and I can do no such thing. We do not hold on to him for salvation, but praise be unto God, he holds on to us. We are in his hand. No one can pluck us out. So what is he saying? You and I are simply called to hold fast the profession of our faith. What does that mean? It means when you wake up tomorrow, you hold tightly, you grip tightly the very hope you have in Jesus Christ. Both for that day and the day after and for the future and everything that comes, you hold on to it. You don't relinquish it for anything. You don't let go. No matter what comes at you in life, no matter the persecution, no matter the problems, you won't let go of that hope and that faith that you have in Jesus Christ. We can do so because you and I, we've entrusted our salvation to the faithful hands of a mighty God. A God who promised this, and boy, 
Peter records it, or Paul records it for us elsewhere, Philippians 1, 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you. Can I just ask right now, don't raise your hand, how many of you have an unfinished project at home? <laughs> how many of us have multiple unfinished, <laughs> amen? I know I do. Can I tell you, when all is said and done, listen to me carefully, the God of heaven will not have one unfinished project. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. I don't have to hold on to my salvation. All I am encouraged to do, <laughs> let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Don't let go of the hope you have in Jesus Christ. The faith you have in your God and all that he has promised. Can I put it this way? You and I are encouraged to hold on to hope, faith. That's our profession. Because our God is holding on to us that salvation. He's holding on to us. It's secure in Christ. It is, he's got that under control. You and I on a daily basis living out our hope, living out our faith, uh, displaying it. How do we do that? Well, I think that's why he puts this all together, doesn't he? It's vital, isn't it? It's vital that you and I put on that or take on that first piece of lettuce. Let us draw near unto him. And as you and I draw near unto him and uh, uh, we enter into his presence, we're empowered, we're encouraged to do the next lettuce of holding, us, uh, holding fast our profession of hopeful faith without wavering. In other words, you and I can be faithful every day because he is a faithful God. Now, the interesting thing about these three pieces of lettuce is this. Number one, the first piece of lettuce very much looked upward. Let us draw near unto him. Number two, the second one did what? Well, it was inward. In my own heart and soul and life, let me, let me hold fast the profession of my faith in this last piece of lettuce, okay? You'll be glad when we're finally through this section, amen? We stop talking about greens. Okay, the last piece of lettuce is what? It's outward. It's outward. Look at verse number 24, if you will. Verse 24 it says this, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love into good works. So we have upward, we have inward, and now we have that outward. I, I consider one another, and that's a, the great same. So enter, enter into his presence, endure, be steadfast, hold fast that profession of your faith, that hope in Christ. And then last but not least, number three, encourage, encourage. How's it start? Well, it starts with our focus, doesn't it? Now he says consider others, uh, consider others. The word used here in the Greek carries the idea of perceiving others. In other words, uh, I describe it as such. It necessitates getting our eyes open and off of ourselves so they can be open to the needs of others. Stop living on the island unto yourself. Stop being so selfish. Stop being so self-focused. So stop being so self-absorbed. Get your eyes off of yourself and get them open to the needs of others. That's what Paul's saying here. Christian life was not designed by God to be lived uh, independently. It's not just our eyes, but it's also our minds and our thoughts. Some of us have already gone over in our Sunday school, and a uh, lesson uh, hits much on this, but we're commanded there to esteem others better than ourselves. The Scriptures say that. How do we do that? We consider them. We give our attention to them. That's what he's saying here, for the provoking of good things in them. Here's how we obey the scriptures and say, don't look on your own things, but look on the things of others. We consider them, their spiritual needs. We make it a priority in our lives to stimulate spiritual growth and production in their lives. 
Can I just tell you right now, every believer needs encouragement from his or her fellow believers. So as we first perceived others, and that, that terminology, perceive them, then you and I are called to do what? Well, we're called to provoke them. Now, that's an interesting choice of words, isn't it? Uh, that term provoke, it's, uh, uh, it, it is very much a, uh, come under um, a negative connotation uh, in our modern uh, terminology. We think of someone provoking someone, antagonizing them, and irritating them. We think of young children. They, they know how to provoke one another. They know how to get each other going. Well, that's typically how we see this word maybe used or how we use it modernly. But there's also a, a definition of old that is good. It means to arouse. It means to excite, to call into action. Another good way to think of this word is a thought that we, as the Bible says, stir up. We stimulate in someone else. Uh, Something that is a means of encouragement. Okay, So it's a great word. We're to excite. We're to incite. We're we're supposed to stir up in someone else. Stimulate something happening in someone else. How do we do that? How do we provoke that? What is the manifestation that we're trying to get someone else to show and display by our stimulation, our stirring them up, our provoking them? Well, the Bible says, or Paul says here, what? Love and good works. Notice the rest of that verse. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. So let's qualify that. What does he mean? Well, here's what he's saying. That love and good works, that's the evidence of salvation. That is the fruit of both salvation and a thriving walk with Jesus Christ. So you and I are called to incite that, excite that in someone else, fellow believers. That's our responsibility. That's part of the lettuce, right? That's our responsibility. So as you can derive, we all can, that this is obviously uh, uh, telling us our responsibility within the assembly, within the congregation among believers, is to protect against being selfish and encouraging others the same. It ought to be our goal to stimulate in others a thriving walk with the Lord, an obvious love for God that comes out in our living, the production of good works that glorify God, not self. What do we call this? Here's what it is. It is the tangible, measurable aspect of Christian maturity. God would have you and I to be tools that he would use to provoke one another unto Christian maturity. To grow up in Christ. To, to smooth off the rough edges. To, to, to um, increase in Christ's likeness while we're losing the, the picture of the old flesh. That's what I, you know, uh, people tell me, uh, you know, or you and I at times, I, I, I can't go to church. I, you know, I, I, if I showed up there, the, the walls would cave in and everything else. You, know, you don't know what I'm like. You don't know what I've done. Can I tell you, the church, and as this passage is, the church is where we come for God to work on us. It's where we come to get the rough edges of the old nature rubbed off and for iron to sharpen iron, for you and I to provoke in one another, not the old flesh stuff, not the, not the fruit of the flesh, but to produce and stimulate in one another the fruit of the Spirit, love, good works, that you and I are supposed to encourage that in one another. That's why Christ said, you know, the greatest commandment is love the Lord thy God. Second commandment is like unto it, love thy neighbor. 
love thy neighbor in this way, that you and I would uh, provoke them unto love and good works. Can I just put it this way, and we'll be done for this evening. The selfish saint provokes very little love and good works in his or her fellow believer. The obedient believer, the one who takes it serious, makes it a priority. So you know what? God has me in his family, and he has a responsibility. He, he's called me. Let us consider one another. So the obedient believer will be provoking unto love and to good works. That will be their purpose in their pattern when gathered with the saints. So when I'm around fellow believers, I, it ought to be a purpose of mine. It ought to be a pattern of my life that I am trying to stimulate. I am trying to stir up other believers into love and good works. That's what I'm called to do. And the only way I do that is get the eyes off of myself and on others. Take my gaze away from my own life and make sure that I am striving to encourage others. I would ask tonight, is it your purpose and your pattern when you're with the saints? Do you have a purpose and pattern to what you do? Do you, do you say, you know what, uh, God's called me to do this, one of these pieces of lettuce. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Then I would just ask you this simple question, and we'll be done. Are all three pieces of lettuce in your life today? Let us draw near. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and unto good works. Is it part of you? We talked about, and I've said it multiple times, we're getting into the very practical aspect of Hebrews. Paul says all the superiority, supremacy of Jesus Christ, all this doctrinal information, we have laid the groundwork, we have laid the foundation for you and I to say, my, if he died for me, if he did all this for me, henceforth, I should live for him. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. How you live a consecrated life, let us draw near. Let us provoke one another into good, or consider one another to provoke unto good works. And then as verse 23 says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. I hope you'll do it this week. I hope you and I will take it and put it into practice. Brother Cliff, you're